is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you're listening to the ARC Light Programme. Shortly, we will be bringing you another of our marvellous slumber time stories, which this week is the concluding part of our underwater adventure. But first, we have another of the evocative recordings of old Albion folk songs that were collated by Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels. Now, last week, we brought you a love song for the ages, but this week, I must confess, I've not had a chance to review the song we are going to play you. Now, the reason for this state of affairs is due to the fact that this weekend just gone, we took the radio show on the road, as it were, and performed in front of a live audience. Well, I think most of them were alive anyway. It was a most splendid event, but I can only apologise that it's put us back a little bit in our preparations for this week's show. Nevertheless, I'm sure you will agree that the songs we have played you up till now have been so far beyond magical that they are practically in a different dimension. So I'm sure that the song for this week will be just as special. So I hope you'll indulge us as we present for you another folk song of Old Albion, introduced once again by Dame Dilemma Spaniels herself. Apologise for that, dear listener. Mabel, Mabel, we'll be having words later. That just proves that you should always listen to material before you broadcast and not rely on your assistant to do the job for you. Oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, moving most swiftly on. Now on the light programme, it's time for Slumber Time Stories. And this week, it's the concluding part of our undersea adventure. Read by yours truly, Theodore Bilkington Rhubarb. Part two of An Aquanaut Misadventure or Rocket Ship to the Bottom of the Ocean by Darren Cowan. The descent to the seabed was an amazing series of events. First, the gantries flashed by in a shower of flames and smoke, and then the ocean itself, at first with a watery magical light, and then increasingly dark as the rockets were extinguished by the briny waters. Finally, 
Nothing could be seen beyond the dome, save what could be picked out rushing past in the gloomy light, emitting from the few deck lamps alone, which was mostly a few startled fish. At this point, our protagonist's stomachs having acclimatized somewhat to the relentless drop, Lushthorpe offered to show them around. Tentatively, as the craft was still shaking spasmodically, Cuthbert, Ellen, Friedkin and Snook all followed the inventor through an airlock in the floor, which was sealed behind them, and down an ornate spiral staircase into the staterooms below. These were indeed very well appointed, with cabins for all should they be required, a smoking room, washrooms, kitchens, and, much to Cuthbert's delight, a banqueting hall, where a splendidly smelling repast was being laid out as they wandered through. Of course, the whole ship is fully pressurised, so you should experience no discomfort, lectured Lushthorpe with extravagant hand gestures as he led them down through another airlock onto a more industrial-looking level, festooned with pipes, coils of rope, and other miscellaneous subnautical-looking equipment. Before showing them round, he called them over to a handle on the wall, painted in red, and adorned with a large, gaudy sign which read, Under no circumstances, pull this lever and a smaller one underneath that read somewhat less bombastically, except an extreme emergency. N now, of course, you may be wondering what should be done in the unlikely event of an emergency during our journey to the cold depths of the bleak ocean floor, began Lushthorpe. Well, I wasn't, interrupted Cuthbert. But I bally well am now. Relax, my lord, countered Lushthorpe. In such circumstances, I need only depress this lever that you will observe here. A warning will sound, and the crew will begin their evacuation procedures in their own personal diving suits. Meanwhile, we shall return to the staterooms, where, once all airlocks are secured... I can pull a second lever, and the dome and attendant levels will detach and float safely back to the surface. At this point, Snook surprised them all by piping up again in his squeaky mouse voice. This second handle? Where is that precisely? Delighted that someone was actually taking an interest in his contraption, Lushthorpe replied at great length, and Snook proceeded to take notes in a tiny notebook with a minuscule but perfectly formed pencil, which resembled something a child might use. A creepy, rat-faced child. While this was happening, Captain Friedkin took the opportunity to show the others some of the features of this level. We are fully equipped to either defend the rocket or carry out recovery operations as required. 
she explained in sonorous tones, somewhat more easy on the ear than Lushthorpe's slightly nasal whine. She guided them carefully between wooden cases and reels of steel cable to where one of the harpoon guns was positioned in the wall next to a large round porthole, through which could be seen only utter darkness. The harpoon gun itself was an amazing contraption mounted in a swiveling mechanism in the wall so it could be aimed from within with the aid of a large arc light, currently unlit, mounted atop the firing mechanism. An elaborate, apparently steam-powered winching box with a tiny brass winding handle on the side sat underneath. The harpoon has 500 yards of high-strength lightweight cable, and the recovery mechanism is power-assisted from the coal turbines. The arc light is extremely powerful, capable of illuminating easily a hundred... Before she could finish her sentence, the onboard announcements crackled into life again, and apropos of entirely nothing, loudly declared, Eight! They all with the exception of Snook, looked at each other bemused. Then an even greater shuddering than normal took place, and it was evident that their descent seemed to be slowing. An industrial-sounding screeching noise could be heard coming from somewhere many floors below them. Friedkin was nonplussed. It sounds as if the propellers have been reversed and the landing legs are being lowered. We must be approaching the seabed. There was another great rumble, and the whole ship rocked again, causing the First Lord to finally lose his footing and crash into the harpoon. In doing so, he must have triggered some sort of switch as the harpoon light sparked into life, illuminating the sea outside. Ellen gasped as she followed this beam of light and realized she was staring into the great looming eyes of what appeared to be an eight-limbed sea monster of gigantic proportions, which was descending alongside them in the gloom. She rushed to the porthole as the thing seemed startled by being suddenly thrust into the spotlight and proceeded to rapidly retreat from view. Monster! There! was all Ellen could muster, as Lushthorpe and a recovering Cuthbert joined her and Friedkin to squint out of the portholes, trying to make out the rapidly disappearing, many-limbed shape in the murky waters. Oh, nearly gone! bellowed Cuthbert in frustration but Ellen was determined not to let it escape. As quick as you like, she took hold of the harpoon gun and aimed its great brass mechanism at the last spot where she fancied the monster had been and fired. With a loud crack, the harpoon shot off into the water along the light beam with its cable taut behind it. With bated breath, they all watched it disappear from sight, so only the glinting line of the cable was visible. As they stared, the line finally went slack. 
and then taut again, and showed no signs of falling away or drifting. Oh, by George, exclaimed Cuthbert. I think you've hit it. Reel her in, girl, reel her in. Needing no second invitation, Ellen grabbed the ridiculously tiny brass wheel on the winch mechanism and amidst much great venting of steam from the side of the contraption, began to whiz it round in almost comical fashion. At first, naught appeared to happen. But the cable was still taut, and the motors were straining audibly. Nothing was yet visible in the harpoon light beam when suddenly, despite Ellen's frantic winding, the rope slacked off and then an ominous black shape could be seen moving towards them. They all stared, slack-jawed, as the blob grew limbs and eyes and a great swollen head. It was around this time that it began to dawn on them that they were no longer controlling its arrival, and the monster was, in fact, racing headlong towards them. Whoa there, sailor, exclaimed the First Lord. Bracing positions, added Friedkin rather more helpfully. But it was too late for any of that. The monstrous shape was upon them almost immediately, blotting out the view from the porthole and then crashing with a mighty and suspiciously metallic sounding clang into the rocket and causing it to judder violently, throwing them all to the floor. The lights flickered then cut out, and they were briefly in darkness, before emergency illumination lit up the whole floor in an eerie red glow. The noise of a baleful klaxon resounded from somewhere in the floors below. Looks, babbled Ellen, finding her feet first and hauling herself up to look out at the shape of the creature now floating a few feet from the rocket. That's not a sea monster. It's some sort of submersible craft. As if to prove her point, the two discs she had taken for eyes suddenly became bright lights, shining directly at them and causing all to turn away from the porthole, shielding their eyes. Quite so. Quite so, came a snide and extremely boring voice from the far side of the room. And they all looked round to see Snook standing next to the now depressed emergency lever. In his hand was a tiny brass five-barreled pistol, clearly cocked and ready to fire. Stay where you are. I have one bullet for each of you, and I'm a perfectly respectable shot. Good Lord, Snape! What are you playing at? growled the First Lord. It's Snook, you imbecile. And what I'm playing at is destroying your deep-sea rocket and depriving the homeland of both its head of the navy and chief scientist. Well, I'll be damned, Snark. You'll hang for this. 
Snook, it's Snook, said Snook tetchily. Now, be quiet, unless you want me to put a hole in the middle of your forehead. He waggled the pistol, and this time no one dared offer any further threats. That's better. Of course, I already have all the gold from the wreck of the Hesperus, and once all of the crew have completed their well-drilled, and perhaps overly obedient evacuation, I shall be on my way, leaving you to meet your end as you see fit. Rather deflated by this, Cuthbert sat himself down forlornly on a nearby crate, and before Ellen or Friedkin could hatch any cunning plans, the loudspeakers crackled into life again. Evacuation complete! They ranted. Snook glanced down at the twin dials of his chronograph. Forty-eight seconds precisely, and the well-drilled imperial rats have abandoned their sinking vessel. This has all been too easy. In your arrogance, you all took me for some chinless accountant and didn't even bother to check my credentials. He started to make his way to the spiral staircase. I must say, it's a shame your cowardly Prime Minister felt unable to join us. That would have been the creamy icing on a rather delicious cake. But, but who the blazes are you? And what do you want? Spluttered Lushthorpe, his eyes wild and bloodshot through his magnifying lenses, giving him an almost ogreish look in the flickering red light. By this time, Snook was almost at the airlock, and I had to backtrack slightly and bend down to reply in a less than dignified position for his lanky frame. Eh? What's that? Oh, who are we? Uh, oh, right. Um, yeah, probably should have mentioned that. Uh, we are the Fourth Day Resurrection League, and you will be hearing from us. And with that, he disappeared through the airlock, slamming it shut behind him. Friedkin immediately leapt up and mounted the stairs to try the hatch. Locked, I'm afraid, she announced tersely to the general sounds of disheartenment. Is there any other way out, Lushthorpe? inquired the First Lord. The inventor was slouched, head in hands, which Cuthbert took to be not altogether encouraging. None whatsoever, I'm afraid. Below us are only the engine rooms, uh, stores and crew levels, and, and the crew themselves are all gone. He shook his head disconsolately. And to think, I gave him full directions on how to detach the dome and escape. He wailed to himself in a slightly odd feline way, which was then accompanied by a judder and a series of popping sounds from above their heads. There he goes now! He wailed some more. The monster is on the move, alerted Ellen, moving the harpoon light to track its progress as it ascended up the side of the rocket. 
those that were interested craned their heads at various portholes as the octo-machine disappeared from view. And then its headlight eyes heralded its return, this time dragging the giant dome of the rocket behind it. Standing serenely next to one of the windows, they could just about make out what they took to be Snook looking back at them. He half raised his arm as if to wave, but then thought better of it and let it drop down again. They all sat in the eerie red gloom for a few minutes, desperately thinking of any plan that might allow them to escape. The only sounds were the distant klaxon that still wailed somewhere below them and the continuing rumble of the steam engines. For want of something better to do, Ellen began opening store boxes. So far, she'd only found overalls and tins of out-of-date pilchards. Oh, he didn't even leave us any lunch, moaned the First Lord to himself, not really getting into the spirit of trying to escape, and then added somewhat pessimistically, We are completely and utterly doomed, accompanied by a forlorn and overly melodramatic sigh. Trying her best to ignore him, another thought occurred to Ellen, as she and Friedkin prized open a further crate, this time full of heavy weave of fisherman's sweaters. The engines are still running. Can't we just power ourselves up to the surface? Alas, the controls are all in the dome. A bit of a design flaw, I would say, replied Friedkin, somewhat sarcastically as she made her way around the giant chimneys in the centre of the floor to look for something more useful to them. Wonderful, sighed Ellen. She opened another crate and pulled out what appeared to be some sort of breathing apparatus. How about this? she asked, holding one up for Lushthorpe to take a look. There's enough for all of us. It's a gas mask, my dear, in case of fumes and such like. His voice tailed off as a rumble shook one of the great chimneys, followed by a hair-raising squeak, much like a giant balloon being twisted, which started loudly and then faded away above their heads. Oh, for the sake of all that is holy, whatever now, moaned the First Lord, clenching his teeth and pulling a face that resembled a stroppy toddler. As if on cue, his tummy chose this moment to rumble loudly in sympathy. Oh, that was the... Oh, wait a minute. Lushthorpe stood up abruptly. I think I I might have a way to get us out of here. Ellen, we need your gas masks after all. And we'll need a a life jacket, flares, a penknife. Heartened by this sudden turn of events, Ellen and the captain began to look through the rest of the stores with renewed energy. Even Cuthbert pulled himself to his feet in order to be of some assistance. Oh, good man, Loshy. I knew we'd be fine. 
What's this plan of yours, then? Oh, you're not going to like it, muttered Lushthorpe. You're not going to like it at all. By now, it was late afternoon, and a warm spring sun was casting its benevolent rays down onto the now quieter waters of the great East Ocean. A herring gull had landed and was bobbing thoughtfully in the swelling tide, contemplating whether to try for more fish or fly on for dry land. Not far away, the great dreadnought pontoons, with their now empty superstructures, were swaying gently on the ocean swells. Alerted by the evacuated aquanauts, who had begun floating to the surface only minutes before, rescue crews were now putting out in all directions, looking for signs of the dome returning to the surface. The bird looked down into the water and thought it saw a fish some way below. Its small brain did some basic trigonometry and reasoned that given its depth, perhaps it wasn't a fish, but rather something bigger and further away. Oh, good, it contemplated. A dolphin, or perhaps a whale. How nice, it mused. Although it is rather rushing towards me now. Then, without so much as a by your leave, the giant shape broke the surface, scattering fish and gulls in all directions. It was an enormous grey balloon, fully thirty yards long and two wide, that stood on end for a moment and then crashed down onto the ocean's surface. It floated there for a second or two, before suddenly bursting in a great cloud of acrid grey smoke, like some giant's rubbish magic trick. As the smoke cleared, four motley figures wearing gas masks and life jackets could be seen bobbing in the water, flailing their arms to dispel the smoke. One of them reached a hand up and released a yellow flare, which arced through the air past the now hovering gull. Bloody whale, it thought. Now it's shooting at me. He defecated in its general direction and made off for somewhere more peaceful. Below him, the bedraggled heads bobbed in the swell, having made good their escape by somehow managing to crawl into Lushthorpe's ridiculously over-engineered exhaust gas balloon expulsion system and allowing themselves to be thus duly expulsed. Spotting the flare, a rescue boat turned and headed towards them, and ripping off his gas mask, the First Lord managed a throaty, Ahoy there, sailor! That finally seemed the appropriate thing to say. Ellen was keeping her thoughts to herself, as she also removed her mask and took in large gasps of fresh, salty air. But somehow, she reflected, it was unlikely they had heard the last of Rhenish Snook and his fourth day Ascension League. And truth be told, dear listener, they really had no idea 
of just what calamities were yet to befall them. No idea at all. Not one clue. None. Well, my goodness, that was a thrilling end to the story. Who would have thought that a gas bag would save the day? I'm sure you are now eagerly anticipating further episodes of this drama, but that's for another week. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orleans. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices, and characters created by and copyright to Darren Callow. The part of Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels was played by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production of Albion Radiophonic Corporation. With a lard, with a lard. This time, full of heavy weave, fishes. Uh.